Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, she's a familiar name to global news watchers and now anchor and reporter Farah Nasser can add Plan International Canada celebrated ambassador to her very impressive resume. And she joins me to talk about what she hopes to bring to that important role. She has spent several years demanding better protection for women and girls in sport, including in her sport, soccer. Now Vancouver's Kiara McCormick, an Ireland international, has a chance to create the kind of environment for athletes that she's been calling for. As co-owner and CEO of Ireland's Treaty United, she explains how she plans to do that. Gig work, side hustles, working three jobs. There are lots of names we can use to describe polyemployment. But our social safety net isn't keeping up with the changing nature of work. What needs to be changed to make sure that it does? It is the most coveted hockey card out there. A 1979-80 Opeechee Wayne Gretzky rookie card. Now, owning a piece of the great one can mean a great windfall for the most pristine ones out there, selling for millions of dollars. Journalist David Parkinson is the proud owner of a rookie card in not quite that perfect condition, but he set out to find out how much it was worth, and he tells us all about it. But first, before he was a six-time Stanley Cup winner, a Hall of Fame inductee, before he became an MP and cabinet minister, Ken Dryden was a student at Etobicoke Collegiate Institute near Toronto. Now he's gone back to find his classmates to find out what life had in store for all of them. It's a story about them. It's a story about him, about that post-war generation and how Canada has changed in their lifetime. And Ken Dryden joins me to talk about his book called The Class, a memoir of a place, a time and us. Growing up in Montreal in the 70s, my hero, he wasn't even my favorite hockey player, but my hero was Ken Dryden. Because to me, nothing epitomized calm, cool, the way he used to perch himself on his goalie stick as the game was being played in the other team's end, often in the 70s, of course. Just the way he exuded this calmness in what I thought was the most exciting sporting event ever, a hockey game, I just thought, this this there's nothing quite like it right i was so impressed now i've met him a few times over the years both when he was first elected as an mp when he ran for leadership of the liberal party and later when we were both covering the referendum in scotland in 2014 but again growing up in montreal there were lots of hockey players to idolize but nobody to me stood quite as tall as number 29 six-time stanley cup winner playoff mvp in 71 rookie of the year in 72 the next year summit series winner hall of fame inductee and all of that in like a nine-year career and he did part of that the early part of that while still a full-time law student at mcgill he was getting a law degree while he was a full-time well he was the the canadian starting goalie it, it still boggles the mind you'll remember he retired from the game pretty early 1979 at just 31 but there were so many other chapters ahead for him he worked as a tv commentator including including alongside al michaels for the miracle on ice game at lake placid in 1980 in 1983 he wrote perhaps the best hockey book ever called the game and several more books would follow in the late 90s he was president of the toronto maple Leafs. in 2005 as i mentioned he was elected as the mp for the toronto riding of york center he would be a cabinet minister in paul martin's government the list goes on and on and on. But before all of that, young Ken Dryden was a student in what was known as the selected class at Etobicoke 
Collegiate Institute in the suburbs of Toronto. He was one of 35 kids in that class that would stay together through their entire high school years. And that is the jump off point for his new book called The Class, a memoir of a place, a time and us. He tracks down many of those former classmates to find out how their lives unfolded, about what became of their teenage plans and hopes. It's a story about them. It's a story about him. And it's also a story about a generation born in the aftermath of a depression and a world war and the impact that they've had on this country. It was released on Tuesday. Again, it's called The Class, A Memoir of a Place, a Time, and Us. And it is my real pleasure to welcome Ken Dryden to a little more conversation. Ken Dryden, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Ben. I, you know, I often look back at the acknowledgements when I start reading a book to find out who they thank before, before I read it, because it always helps. Um, this was a book that you'd been thinking of writing for quite a while. What sparked the idea of wanting to sort of revisit what had happened to that incredible class that you were in in Etobicoke back in the 60s? Yeah, it was, I mean, I guess less a sense of revisiting the class, but more to revisit the people to see what our lives had been like since those years in, in that class. And, uh, and, I, and I think probably almost all of us, and often at many times in our lives, we ask ourselves the you know, the question of, as as we're shaking our heads, you know, how did we get from there to here? How did we get from our childhood selves to our adult and later adult uh, selves? And and the path is is just so. I mean, we you know, we we think it's clear and we think it's straight, and it goes into twists and turns and. And we don't end up where we expect we we were going to at all, and that's certainly the way it had been for me and in, in my life. Uh, anybody that I knew, it was the same. Well, I wanted to find out with my thirty four classmates uh, where we had ended up. Yeah, and and incredibly, all thirty five of you wound up in university, which was rare for the time. How did you find them all? I was thinking. I mentioned a bunch of people. All of a sudden, we're getting friend requests on Facebook from you, but I don't know if that's how you did it. Well, no. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not on Facebook, and oh, I didn't. There you I didn't Use it as an instrument. I I I essentially started with there were a couple of people that I um, um, that I had been in some contact with and I knew where they were. And I thought uh, that there was one person that would be more likely to have had some list of, of, of addresses and phone numbers. And so I contacted her and she had about, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13. It turned out that about, you know, Seven or eight of them were still active, uh, but that was okay. That was the start. And then once you know, once you have seven or eight people, then each of them has another person that they have seen at some point or have a lead uh, on, and then the number starts to grow. Um, the the hardest part uh, is is finding. Uh, my female classmates, some of whom in marrying have changed their names and taken on their husband's last names. And so that was a little more complicated. But but again, in, in the end, I found 34 of the 35. Um, I, and and uh, six had passed away. Uh, but I found family members of five of those six. And uh, and so was able to speak with them about their, 
you know, brother or sister. And um, and anyway, I mean, it was just it was just it was just a number that that grew and grew. Yeah, it is a remarkable snapshot of a particular time in Canada, that moment, post-war baby boom, suburban. Uh, my mom was born in 47. So I, I when I'm reading it, I could just picture the houses because my mom grew up in a very similar kind of house uh, that you did. I had family in Etobicoke as well. I mean, it really was a snapshot. And then the way that you carry it all the way through is, I mean, it, it is about that class that you were in and, and the people that were in it, but it's about Canada too. And I think that part of it was comes through, shines through the book. Well, thanks. I mean, it. I, I knew in starting that, that um, and from other things I had done, that anytime you write about a person, you're also writing about a time. And, and uh, so I knew that starting out, but what I, you know, kind of only, what only came to me in, in the middle of writing it was that while I knew this was, a, you know, a, from, you know, how did we get from there to hear book about us individually? I hadn't thought of it in terms of how did we get from there to here as a country? And, and, and that, you know, and it is, you know, a, a very vivid experience. And I think that, like, you know, that, that being born, almost all of us in 1947, a few in 1946, we're, we're called baby boomers, but there, but there's not much information in, in the phrase baby boomer. Um, what we were, I think, and, and the, the phrase that would define us is that we were post-war kids. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what we, you know, that's what really made the biggest difference. And our parents were were not. Our parents were born, you know, in the 1910s mostly, from um, you know, somewhere in there. And they would have been affected to, to some extent by the First World War, by um, more than uh, a, you know, uh, an insignificant extent by the flu epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 mother's father died in the flu epidemic, and so uh, my grandmother uh, raised my mother and my other and my uncle as 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 a single mother. Mm-hmm. But then, all of our parents would have been hugely affected by the depression. They would have been just you know that the the younger ones would be um, uh, coming out of school and into their first jobs. The older ones would be, you know, further on in their early jobs and, and, and of going through that and trying to find their initial way through times like that. And then immediately they're into World War II. And so many of them um, served in the military in one way or another and whatever the natural flow of their lives was going to be of uh, where they were be just getting into the point of starting their own, you know, of getting married and starting their own families that got put on hold um, through the second world war. And then we arrived um, uh, just afterwards and, and, and where you had parents that were looking to catch up uh, on, on life, looking to catch up, in in jobs and careers looking to catch up in terms of families and 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 having the chance to not only catch up but kind of leap ahead because these were times of immense possibility um unlike almost all of the rest of the world which was in disarray 
from the impact of war and and the impact of of the you know the the end of empires for the most part and and of newly independent countries you know the united states and canada was there um you know with with just all of these dimensions uh ahead of them where it seemed for all of us as if the world was for for our defining uh what it, you know that that we could be anything um ken there's some really interesting things in this book about you and i think one of the things that people mightn't be as familiar with i think when i was young i knew that you had had a you'd gone to law school because i grew up in montreal and my dad used to tell me you know ken dryden went to law school um and he was a habs fan a diehard habs fan so i don't know if that was said with any amount of bitterness or not that you had left and sort of come back but you never thought of yourself as a hockey player per se and i was really struck by that that there was this idea that when you were in high school that to be well-rounded and that you never sort of saw hockey as the career it was just something that you did yeah i mean it, it that that and it and it wasn't as if i was any less committed to doing it i mean i i love playing i mean i i played you know hockey in in winter and baseball in summer and any other game that was happening around and and would ter- totally immerse myself in it but we you know that the, the the real dream of our parents again in this context of of where canada had uh, you know that whatever it is we were at that time we really were going to you know it's what we were going to be that's what canada was and so central to to what we were going to be was education and uh, very few of our parents you know went on to to university almost all of them uh, either ended at at, at uh, with high school or they dropped out of high school i mean that was the that was the nature of the times in in the in the early decades of the of the 20th century and in all the decades before that and 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 so the, the dream uh, that our parents had for us was that we would go to university, and that was absolutely in the air for us. And so, essentially, the rule in our house was that you know you can play as much hockey as you want and as much baseball as you want and do any other kind of activities as much as you want, so long as school is going fine. If school isn't going fine, that's when the problem sets in, and. I mean, I, I I wanted to play so much that I had better do fine in school or this was all going to come apart. Uh, but at the same time as that is that, again, I mean, we're you know, growing up in a time where television was really just beginning. You know, we were lucky in Toronto to be close enough to the U.S. border that we got two U.S. stations from Buffalo. We got right. we got the NBC affiliate and the CBS affiliate. But otherwise, we and almost all of the rest of the country, all we got was CBC. And CBC, I think, started at four in the afternoon and was done by 11 or midnight. That was it. And, and so the big thing that we would watch on CBC was Hockey Night in Canada. And those players on that screen... I mean, they were 10 feet tall and could skate a thousand miles an hour. And they certainly weren't us. They certainly weren't kids in Etobicoke, even, you know, good players on minor hockey teams. We would never grow up to be them. You know, that that, that was an impossible distance 
to uh, to travel. And so what was ahead for me, I hoped, was to play as long as I could, play university hockey. Uh, but again, going to university, then I go on to law school. I, I live a lawyer's life, whatever that is, uh, likely in Toronto because I didn't know anything else at that time. Likely get married, likely to have kids because that seemed what people did. And that was going to be my path. But it was not to be um, uh, a hockey player. And it was a total surprise. That, I mean, all the way along. I mean, even as I was doing better and, and, and getting closer. And even when I signed with the Canadians to, to you know, I signed. Well, but my deal with the Canadians was that I was a full-time law student at McGill. And I would only play eight or nine games a year and practice when I could for the, their American Hockey League team until I graduated. But, you know, then things got better than, you know, went better than I thought. The Canadians had a need in goal. And, uh, and I decided that, that, that I would sign a contract as if I was a full-time player, but I was also a full-time law student at the same time. And so that happened for for two years. I was both playing with the Canadians and going to McGill Law School. Uh, but I still, even at that point, I didn't think of myself as a hockey player when when we'd have to fill out forms <laughs> each year. <laughs> and, you know, it had occupation. And I wrote law student. I mean, every time I, I would write law student. And then and then I finally, you know, graduated and I wasn't a law student anymore but I wasn't a lawyer and it was only then that I had to fill in something and I wrote hockey player. Canada is a great global experiment, a true global society that works in the only way our global world of the future can work. Canada matters. It matters to me. It matters to us. It matters to the world. Ken Dryden is with us uh, this hour. His most recent book is called The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. Ken, in, in going through some of the things that you witnessed, and, and you sort of interspersed the book with, with moments in history, things that you saw, and you've seen so much. I mean, I didn't know much about the Cornell days. I suppose if one does the math, you can figure it out. But here you are, you're in the States, you've gone to Cornell to play hockey. Vietnam is happening, the civil rights movement is going on. Uh, Joan Baez plays at Cornell the night after Martin Luther King is assassinated. You're sort of standing in something and I'm wondering how that impacted what happened after that, because so many of your classmates stayed here, like many of us do, stayed in Canada. And you had this different experience by going to school in New York and you met your wife there. That's right. I mean, it, it, it was um, it, in, in some ways it did cut me off from a full Canadian experience. In the late 1960s, it was a formative time for, for you know, university students in Canada as well. But formative in in a little bit less of an uh, an intense kind of way in in terms of uh, of civil rights and of the black students uh, at at Cornell and the kinds of um, um, you know protests that would be taking place and 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 you mentioned the the Joan Baez concert she was on the Cornell campus the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I was at that conference, at that concert. And, and I mean, it was just this night where, where every song that she, I mean, her presence there, let alone every song that she sang had 
civil rights meaning to it. And I don't know whether she sang 10 songs, 15 songs, but we were all waiting for We Shall Overcome. I mean, that was the final song that she sang. But it seemed as if every song that she sang before then was really a version of We Shall Overcome. But at the same time, you know, in, in Canada, and it was really interesting for me to hear it from my from my classmates, that universe, there were that many more students at universities at that time, and students were starting to get more, not only engaged intellectually by, by marching, by protesting, by using their voices, there was, it was much more outgoing and expressive than it had ever been before. But at the same time, um, is that Canadian politics right. were in a bit of uh, a disarray as well. And of where after, you know, uh, a long stretch of, of liberal governments and mostly with, you know, with Mackenzie King, but now that there were, you know, Diefenbaker was elected, but a minority, you know, that after a minority, then a majority, then a minority, then, you know, then, uh, um, then, um, uh, then, uh, Pe- you know, Lester B. Pearson was That's elected true, yeah. the minority. And well, and, and eventually and afterwards, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. back and forth of, 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 of governments and where in a sense, the, the the public mood and the the the, the sense of, um, of of kind of you know political engagement was growing at a time when politics seemed not up to uh, the you know the, the standard you know of it and so where was that um, engagement and expression going to come from and a lot of it came from the stirrings on on Canadian university campuses right and a lot of my you know classmates they were either you know some were involved or others were on the periphery you know of it and it was a time you know where you know that that at u of t where a lot of my classmates went i mean bob ray was a student at that time michael ignatieff was a student there at the time it was a time you know when student radio was becoming a big deal when the student newspaper became a bigger deal that around that time as well and a little bit before margaret atwood was there dennis lee was there Uh, others who would come to uh go to right from there to cbc and be you know central to a, a a core news show at the time called this hour was seven days yeah and 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 where suddenly there was a news program that was provocative that was controversial that was essentially you know looking at canada and saying you know we're more than this we're better than this so all of that was coming through this period of time and then you wander into the quiet revolution. I mean, you wander into the quiet revolution. I don't know how open your eyes were to it at the time. I mean, you were studying at McGill, playing for the Canadians. You tell me this story in person, actually, when we were in Scotland and Edinburgh together for that referendum, about being on the ice the night the PQ was elected in 1976 and realizing, even from your perch, your famous perch, that something has changed. Something yeah. fundamental has changed, not just in Quebec, but in Canada at that very moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, we arrived in... You know, that my wife and I were married in May of 1970. We arrived in Montreal for the first time for me to be a law student and to go to the Canadians training camp and my wife to be a teacher in September of 1970. By the end of the month, you know, that there were tanks on the streets of of Montreal 
Uh, it was the you know the the kidnapping of 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 Pierre Laporte and uh, and I've suddenly forgotten uh, uh, his Cross, name. Yes, yeah, yes, James Cross, mm-hmm. and then and then the murder of of Laporte, uh, the invocation of the of the War Measures Act, and then from that point to you know to do you know the, the, in 1976, you know five plus years later was 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 the election of René Lévesque uh, uh, and the PQ and and whose principal um, a platform was to take Quebec out of Canada and 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 on that night that you you know that you mentioned we were you know on November the 15th 1976 the day of the referendum we were playing that night at the Montreal Forum or the election yeah mm-hmm. and and we were playing the St. Louis Blues and it was the most unusual environment I have ever been in for a game. And and anybody who has ever been to a Canadians game, you know, even now in the Bell Centre, but certainly then at, at the Montreal Forum, is the Canadian Canadians fans, I mean, they're not only into it, they're ahead of the game. They, you know, they see they're so immersed in it that they can see you know what's about to happen, not just what is happening, and and the sound, their sounds anticipate what is about to happen. So the the cheering begins before the goal goes in, and that night it didn't. And the, the 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 sounds were a beat slow, and as if they were, and it wasn't as if they were, they were distracted by what else was going on, and every fifteen minutes or so. Over the at that time, it was just a, a kind of a news scrawl uh, that was in the Montreal Forum would be updates on on you know the, on the election, and then finally, when there was the news that that you know that the PQ had won and there was a new government, I mean it was just stunning the sound that that you know that fi- you know that this you know roar that came up in the arena that didn't have to do with a goal you know, being scored, but had to do with the message, you know, on that sign. But if you looked around, that was the real story, because that sound was created by 10,000 people yelling their lungs out, and the other 10,000 people were silent. And they were sitting side by side in this arena, just as they had sat side by side in that arena for years and decades, and often, like literally, you know, the you know one pair of season tickets and then the next pair of season tickets, and and they had all what they had in common was so deep all of those years this love of the same team, and all of a sudden there in, in was was a revelation about the person next to them that they didn't know. Uh, and, and, and I am sure that in many instances, that relationship was never the same again. You think you're going to be back for a crack at, uh, number seven Stanley Cup for Ken Dryden next year? I don't know. I, uh, I don't, I'm really at a stage now where I'm, I'm not really all that interested in thinking about it for the next week or so. I'm this, as we've sort of gone through this year has been a very tough year and I'm, Quite interested in sort of uh, uh, 
just leaving behind uh, many of the burdens of this year and uh, living without some burdens for a while, and then I can think about accepting new ones later on. Ken Dryden's with us this hour. His book is called The Class, A Memoir of a Time, A Place, and Us. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking about your career. I was there, actually, when you were elected, first elected as an MP uh, back in 2005, I guess it was. But um, you've retired a few times. And then you talk about retirement in this book, how that whole class hit 65, and then COVID came, and and just retiring itself. But you don't. you talk about it in a way that seems so... It's it's so um, it's 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 inspirational, honestly, because you you treat it in a way that that is that makes you think there's always something new you can do, and and I guess you have a lot of you have a lot more experience than most when it sort of comes to changing big careers. Well, I mean, I I, I, I have sort of um, on paper retired, I guess, a few times, but but never really. I mean, and and so I mean, when you when you leave a playing career. And it's it's like anybody who 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 starts into a career young and whose career is short because it's the nature of things. I mean, if if you're a musician, chances are your career is going to be over by thirty or thirty-five. If you're in sports, it's very much that case. And and in certain other fields, it's the same thing that you have to go on. You end up retiring or being retired in what it is you know you were doing and you've got to find a way of dealing with that and and getting on to the next thing and of course you know you you look forward to that next thing you want that next thing to be just as vivid and meaningful and purposeful as anything that you've done before and uh um and and that could be you know again it was always a you know, how did we get from there to here? So you start with the, you know, the there and you bring the there into an earlier time with parents and so on. And you bring the story forward to a here. And so I'm in the present writing this. And and then the story is brought up to that present as if when I write that last sentence and, 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 and put a period at the end of that last sentence, I'm at, there and now the story is over but it's no it's not over unless i die when i put the period at the end of that sentence now there's there's a new there i mean and i've got a deal you know with you know after that period and what's the next sentence and what's the next paragraph uh in it and that's of course you know what it is for all of us in dealing with the next there it, it it is a you know sort of that super challenging there of as you're older and yeah. and and you you have your kids and your grandkids and so much of what your focus is is that you know you 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 there's there's an instinct to focus on the past but at the same time your preoccupation is with the present but really more the future because you think more uh, about your kids and about your grandkids and and what's life for them what's life going to be for them how are they going to be okay what you want more than anything is something of course that you can't have and that is to know that they are going to be okay right. and so then you immerse yourself in their lives and in thoughts of the future and actions about the future 
and to see if there's something that you can do in terms of the future. And, and in many ways, you're 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 living more in the future than you were in most of, you know in, in those all those years of adulthood where you were so preoccupied with making the most of the present. Yeah, you but may your next game be your most important. I love that line that you wrote for somebody else, by the way. One thing that really stood out to me uh, in this book, amongst the many, many other things, is at one point you talk about your legacy as, as in many ways, but as a hockey player. And you mentioned that Orr and Gretzky sort of changed the game, and you don't feel that you did. But you set a standard, maybe not a standard. You felt that what you brought to the table was the ability to show a generation of athletes that came after you and beyond that you could both be a professional athlete and a great student, and that that was what you encompassed as being your legacy in sport, amongst other things. Well, it's like, you know, the, I didn't think about that. I mean, as, as I'm doing it, I'm just doing it. And, 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 um, but I, and I remember at when I first, like you, you, you'd, you'd often hear people say, uh, you know, they'd come up to me and, and it would usually be parents and they'd say, you know, thank you. Um, that that I've been trying to get across to my kids that school is important and all they want to do is play hockey and they all think they're going to make the NHL and basically nobody does. And so I I knew that there was some effect that way, but didn't, you know, didn't think much about it. One of the things that surprised me is that is that then somebody came up to me at, at some point and he was a you know quite a well-known film director. And and his 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 story was the opposite of it. He was this kid who was an artsy kid. That's where his interests were, his instincts were. His parents could see it. That's what uh, they were encouraging. But he also loved to play ball hockey. And his parents could never see the point of him going out and wasting his time playing hockey in the streets or in the playgrounds. And and he was you know he could say to them but look look at him yeah. he's doing a bunch of things and 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 that I became his right or his license to do something else that he was interested in it was not going to be his career it was never going to be his career but it was another interest it was another part of him and I think and, and I mean like I did not change the game one bit I think as 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 a goalie. If I had some impact, I think it was the fact that just in 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 just kind of living as I you know lived and and followed the interests that I had and and the opportunities that I had, I went to school and was playing you know hockey in the NHL while I was going to law school, and if there are any kids who ended up staying in school a little bit longer and maybe even discovering a few things that were of interest to them during that time and the kind of impact that that had you know uh, had on them 5 years later 10 years later that they were more comfortable with other things more comfortable with learning in in other ways uh and the and the ripple effect that that had on their lives that's okay you know that was that that's was... a win <laughs> yeah. Ken, Ken, I, I really appreciate your time thank you so much Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben. Then with Smeilov, the Oilers pulled Dryden, and Wayne Gretzky finished off a three-way passing play with McDonald and Callaghan to tie the score at four. Gretzky on the backhand, and the Oilers tied for the second time. 
There you have it. Uh, and that was not Kendron, by the way. That was his brother, Dave, who played for the Oilers back in the day. Uh, speaking of heroes, we've been asking about who your first idol was tonight. Mine, of course, was, was Ken Dryden, as I was mentioning, growing up in Montreal in the 70s. And we just spoke to him in the last hour about his new book. We're kind of continuing the hockey theme as we talk about collectors and collections this week. And a lot of people, for a lot of people growing up, even when I was young, you know, the great one was, was an idol to them. And that was him scoring his first NHL goal 44 years and five days ago against the Vancouver Canucks on October 14th, 1979. He would obviously go on to score 893 others over his incredible career. I mean, he wrote, rewrote the record books, and many of them remain untouched to this day. So it's no surprise that 99's rookie hockey card, released that same year, 1979, has become one of the great Canadian sports collectibles, the most valuable card produced in this country ever one of them selling for 3.75 million dollars us just a few years back now like many nine-year-olds in the day i was obsessed with hockey cards and i remember that year that year for some reason the cards were blue they're burned into my memory i had many wayne gretzky cards all of which i lost track of sometime in the early 1990s none of them were in good condition mind you but my next guest well he held on to one of them that happened to be in pretty perfect condition. Bought like they all were back then at a corner store in a pack of many with a stick of gum. Produced by Opeachy of London, Ontario. His card, though, has survived several decades and several moves. And Dave Parkinson decided to find out the history of the card and how much his might be worth. It's an incredible journey. He's, of course, an economics columnist and reporter at the Globe and Mail. Also owner, proud owner of a Wayne Gretzky rookie card in very good condition. How good? He joins me now. Dave, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Ben. I, I was thinking back because I don't know. I guess I must have been eight or nine that year, and I was an avid hockey card collector, and I bought so many packs of those cards, and I could not find Mike Kajiski. He was a New York Islander. <laughs> and so I had many Wayne Gretzky cards, but no Mike Kajiski. I would have given you a dozen Wayne Gretzkys <laughs> for a single Mike Kajiski, but it just didn't happen. And uh, I bet a lot of people did exactly that. You they know? did. How did you How did you wind up with, with your prized, prized Gretzky rookie card? Well, it's pretty much the same story, Ben. I was maybe, I think I was probably about 14 or 15 at the time. And I was, uh, my friends and I were kind of still clinging to our childhood a little bit, buying them at the corner store like everyone else. I believe the guy I had trouble with was uh, a guy by the name of Bob Hess, who I think played yes. for St. Louis at the time. I and I could not, could not find him. So I came one card short of the set. But uh, I had at least one Gretzky. Who knows? I might have had more. I might have traded him away, traded away my doubles for uh, for something I really coveted which was uh i was a huge habs fan growing up calgary didn't have its own team at the time which was where i grew up so uh we were i was looking for Guy lafleur and after lafleur i was probably looking for dryden and shut maybe larry robinson and uh i would have been willing to part with gretzky if you had those but uh for, fortunately uh i was able to hang on to one of them and it just kind of stuck with me for 40 something years yeah, Bob Hess. I'm I'm convinced that Opeachy, and maybe you asked them this, kept one card out of every market. <laughs> well, they, you know what? The, the card guy I talked market. to, uh, hmm? Gary Corrine, who was the the last owner of Opeachy, and he's still kicking around. He's in his 80s in London, Ontario, which is where the Opeachy factory was. But Gary claims that they never made any more or less of any card. They uh, they came off in great big sheets that had 132 of them. 
and you know one card of each of 132 players on a sheet and they made exactly as many of them as mm-hmm. any others so he says there are there were as many Wayne Gretzky's in the world as Mike Kazicki's as Bob Hess's as anyone else it just yeah. so happens that one of these cards is worth a lot of money and the others are worth pennies yes there goes my earliest held conspiracy theory <laughs> You, uh, you carried this card around you with you for a very long time. It was almost stolen. You've kind of treated it with the kind of care that I think a lot of Wayne Gretzky rookie cards, sadly, including my own, weren't. Well, and that's one of the things that actually makes this uh, such a valuable card is that it was sold in an era where it was a toy for a kid. It was a, it was a, a little amusement with some really bad gum attached to it. So these weren't things that anybody expected would become valuable, popular, held on to forever. You know, the people who are lucky enough to have held on to them in a lot of cases did it by accident. And they were just, you know, they just shoved them in a box somewhere and happened to rediscover one day that they've they've got them. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids just used them as toys and they either got destroyed or lost or they forgot all about them. But the, the, the COVID pandemic had a lot of people sort of, you know, starting to wonder lots of time on their hands, maybe a little bit of extra money. Maybe they they liked sports cards and started people started rummaging through shoeboxes and attics and uh, some of these cards started popping up again. So but definitely one of the things that makes the Gretzky valuable is they weren't particularly well made in the first place because they're just little squares of cardboard. People didn't really treat them with kid gloves they uh they used and abused them and some people with some foresight tucked them away carefully i put mine in a little plastic box that was actually designed for a computer disc it wasn't a proper uh storage container for a hockey card but it was good enough kind of kept it tucked away in a cupboard for a while you know until one day i started thinking i wonder what this thing's worth yeah and you managed to hide it too i think there was a near miss wasn't there someone broke into your yeah when i was living in vancouver about 25 years ago i was away on a trip and just before i went away i kind of thought to myself i wonder if i should hide a couple of these things in a better place than than the you know the bottom drawer of my desk and some of the older cards the the ones that i personally valued a bit including this one I just kind of grabbed them and I found us a better place to hide them. I figured, well, if somebody breaks in and clears out everything, they're never going to think to look here. And uh, I won't disclose where it was because who knows? I might do it again. <laughs> might have to do it again. Um, but uh, at any rate, the apartment, in fact, was broken into. They took everything they could find in my apartment of any value whatsoever. But I went to the, the hiding place and there was Mr. Gretzky still right where I left him. So. Still with you. I don't think we realized this growing up because there was, always, there was always this idea. I remember Tops had cards in the States and sometimes you'd buy... I think they had baseball cards. So I think I may have bought those. I don't think I realized till much later that Opeachy, the Canadian versions of the hockey cards, are much higher value than anything else. Yeah, for, for hockey, I mean, Opeachy made a lot of the same things. It, it had marketing agreements with Tops to produce baseball cards. Tops had a marketing agreement with that with Opeachy to to uh, produce basically identical hockey cards, and so all of these things came out looking exactly the same. The big difference was that when um, Canada's um, French language laws came into place, uh, would have been late 60s, I think, that Opeachy was required to put both French and English on their cards. So that's that's what will always distinguish whether you've got an Opeachy card versus a Topps card. And for people who are big on collecting this stuff, investors and serious collectors, for hockey, they want the Opeachy card because that's the Canadian card and hockey is the Canadian sport. They know when they turn the back of the card and see both languages on the back that they've got an Opeachy and they know that that automatically makes it more valued by collectors because it's uh, it's from the home of hockey.
I was curious to know, before we get to what it was worth, you did look into the, because I remember that card vividly, obviously even more so uh, now these days, but the photograph on it was kind of cool for for that era. I mean, I, when I first started, it was all of that sort of pose shot with the, the goalie holding his stick and the player holding his stick, and they were all a bit awful looking. The Gretzky shot was an on-ice shot. It was a really nice one, and it's helped it be more valuable. It's a really a nice looking hockey card. It is. Uh, and yeah, I was the same, you know, the same way in the kind of early 70s. They were very posed, stilted looking photos. And then maybe mid 70s to late 70s, they started doing in-game action. And uh, the Gretzky shot was uh, was shot actually while he was still playing in the WHA when he was still a, you know, a 17 year old kid when he when he'd first started. And uh, there's a, a hockey photographer, like quite a well-known hockey photographer, who uh, I believe he, he still works in the business. I believe he uh, uh, does some work for the Boston Bruins, a guy by the name of Steve Babineau. And uh, Babineau was hired to shoot some photos. Apparently, he was not particularly well paid for it, but he was shooting some pictures for some hockey cards. And he had gone to a game that the Oilers were playing against the old New England Whalers. And he was actually there to take a shot of Gordie Howe, who was playing in New England at the yeah. time. You know, he just took shots of other guys as they were skating by and not really thinking much of it. And then the the photos he took that he wasn't really hired to take, he sold them to the hockey card people. He sold them to to Tops and Opeachy and got a few bucks for those. But it is a really nice shot. I mean, Gretzky is kind of tilted at a sort of about a 30 degree angle. He's looking up at the at the scoreboard. Apparently they were kind of in the last minute of the game and he was trying to decide if he had time to to make one more uh, one more rush. And um, he just sort of caught him in the moment as he was about to take off as he's kind of looking up and just just about to go. And yeah. it, is, uh, it is a cool uh, image. Yeah. Looking up at his at his very bright future. That's what I was. Yeah, and, he, and he's like... and he's also like he's just a rail thin kid. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's kind of cool to see just, you know, I think I think his card claimed that he was 160 pounds or 165. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe wearing everything he owned. You know, but uh, but he was he was not a big kid, but obviously something something really special, and it and it is a kind of a it's a not quite action shot that's that's unique. I doubt it really helped the value of the card because I mean Gretzky helped the value of the card just by yes. being Gretzky. I don't think it hurt it because it's a nice photo. It looks it looks good in a frame, and and the value of them is pretty astounding for for sort of the most pristine, uh, almost like a diamond, the most pristine, unless there's a flaw, but it has to be a very, very unique flaw. It has to be a very rare flaw, rather. But the most pristine version of this card is worth how much now? Uh, millions, right? Yeah, there was uh, the Opeachy card, which again, as we discussed earlier, is worth more than the Tops version, but they're they're both cards that are valued in the millions now. But the, the Opeachy, what they call a Gem Mint 10 card, which is the highest rating that the card uh, the, the card graders give uh, one of those sold last year for uh, 3.75 million US wow. dollars. And the value of the things went crazy actually during the pandemic, they pretty much tripled in value for the, the top cards and even the cards, a couple of grades down from the top cards also saw their value at least double. You know, when you talk about the, the Gretzky rookie card and the gem mint 10 versions of those, there's only ever been three that have been graded. This is among sort of the superstars of sports. This is the rarest card there is. Oh, wow. The, the sort of the Honus Wagner of hockey in some ways, if there's only. Yeah, I mean, the Honus Wagner card is, is, is uh, it might might be more rare. But, you know, when you talk about sort of when you talk about baseball, you usually talk about the Mickey Mantle rookie card, which yeah. I think is at 1952. There's a, there's been three of them as well. So the same level of, of rarity. Of rarity. There, have been, there have been more mantles kind of a couple of grades down from it. There have been 
300 odd uh, Michael Jordan rookie cards that have been graded the top grade. So Michael Jordan kind of came in as the quality of the cards were better to begin with. Yeah. No more gum uh, in those, pa- no more gum in those packs, right? All that. No, no. They took the gum out because the gum, the gum gummed them up. Basically they put sort of powdered sugar in the packs to try to keep the cards from sticking together. And the, it kind of made a mess of the, of the finish. So, uh, so they stopped doing that. But yeah, I mean like, you know, this, this card, they're obviously not all worth 3.75 million though. They're, when you talk to the people who grade these things, our idea of what looks like a perfect card and their idea is completely different. Yeah, because I mean, yours is pretty perfect, it. right? Yours is pretty pretty perfect, and you went and had it assessed. I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. I guess I was wrong. It, it well, not too right. It's not invaluable. Like it's not without value. It, it, no, it's it, pretty, it, pretty it impressive. looked perfect to me. It looked perfect to me. But yeah, when you sit down with a with a grader, and they they don't really let you sit down and watch them actually grade the cards. But you can you can go to an expert, and they'll give you sort of some general tips about it. But if anything's not perfectly centered, if the margins around the image are slightly wider at one end of the card than the other, and God help you if any of the corners have been dinged in any way, because they're really fussy about square corners. Any of that stuff, even if it's minor, drops the value in a hurry. So mine was graded a near mint 7.5. Pretty good. Which is which is still in the top 10% of all cards that have ever been graded by Beckett and PSA who are the two two of the top grading companies. But a 7.5 card is not worth millions. No. What is it worth, if you don't mind? Uh, or is that, or is that, you don't like to talk about it? The, like... the, the value, it kind of depends on the, it's like anything that you can sell at auction. It depends on the auction. Anywhere from about 6,500 to maybe 10,000. Wow. It kind of depends on the week. It kind of depends on how Still. the market is at a given time. If it was two years ago, it might have gone for double that. Right. Still um, a lot. Of, still a lot, though. That's uh, by the way, I did look this up before we spoke. Uh, that Mike Kaziski card I was talking about earlier, the Islanders <laughs> one that I couldn't find. I didn't look up Bob Hess, but that's worth about a buck fifty. No offense, Mike, right. if you're listening. And Bob, if you're listening, <laughs> Mike had a great career. But uh, uh, David, thank you so much for, for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's been fun. Gig work. Side hustles, working three jobs. There are all kinds of terms for it now. My next guest calls it poly employment. That's a pretty good one. Rolls off the tongue. And she's one of the foremost experts on the realities of it these days. She set her sights now on one of the glaring gaps in how the gig economy works, how gig workers are treated. You'll remember at the height of the pandemic, some were actually getting more in CERB. Some employees were getting more in CERB benefits than they would have made if they were working. But that wasn't true for a lot of gig workers and those working multiple jobs. They received reduced assistance that didn't reflect the, the income that they were losing at the time. Part of the problem is how the system was really built around the old notion of one person, one job, right? That's kind of how the whole employment insurance system has been set up. Um, And it's failed to adapt to modern work conditions and environments where people can and do find multiple ways to earn a living. And certainly in most cases, out of necessity, not out of choice. So why is that a, you know, why is that a problem, not just for them, but for the economy more broadly? And how can the social safety net be rewoven to prevent them from falling right on through? Joining me now is Alexandria Ravenel. She's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, But more importantly, her latest book is called Side Hustle Safety Net, How Vulnerable workers survive precarious times. And she joins me now. Alexandra, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. 
This is a really interesting topic because clearly, you know, in, in many places, not just Canada and the U.S., the whole system set up to try to provide a safety net for workers uh, hasn't been able to keep up with the change and how work, uh, what work is these days. And you've kind of tackled it a few times, but tell me about the inspiration for this one. Uh, well, um, so I personally uh, experienced unemployment multiple times uh, before moving into academia. Um, but for this book in particular, I was really focused on the experience of workers during COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I tell people it's not a book about COVID. Everyone started the pandemic. I'm tired of the pandemic. But something really fascinating happened during the pandemic where we threw the usual rule book, rule book out the window and we decided to give people a lot of money on unemployment. In the U.S., 76% of recipients receive more on unemployment than they've been making while working. Right. That's very much at odds with how we normally handle things in the U.S. We're not but, known for our social safety net. No, but it did, as you point out, even right at the beginning of the book with two separate examples, it did expose some real flaws in the system so that someone who was sort of working more hours, doing more work to try to protect themselves was actually punished compared to someone who just had a single job. Exactly. So I call that polyemployment the idea of working multiple jobs. And we've seen a real explosion in polyemployment in the U.S. and in Canada. And part of this is because of stagnant wages. Part of it is also because we really very much sort of ideal, um, sorry, uh, part of that is because of stagnant wages. And part of it is also because as time has gone on, we've really sort of taken this idea of a side hustle and we've given it almost like a mythical level of power. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll have a side hustle. You know, we we recommend it to people. It's seen as a way to have a passion. But the problem is that side hustle, that additional go and get them, mm-hmm. that actually can backfire if you lose your main job. And now you don't get any unemployment assistance because you're sort of still working, even though you can't necessarily support yourself. Yeah. And, and that, as you point out, was exacerbated or at least laid bare uh, during the pandemic. In Canada, of course, we had CERB. Uh, and, and, if, you know, and, and of course, we have an unemployment insurance system or employment insurance, as we call it now. Uh, but you're, what happens, I guess, is that people who continue to have different jobs, they, you actually get punished for working. And that feels like it's counterproductive to the whole, to the whole system. It really is counterproductive. You know, we know that when people have access to unemployment assistance where they're not being penalized in quite the same way, um, that it can actually help them to start businesses. We see this in France, for instance, where you can get your unemployment assistance and start a business, and it actually leads to an increased number of business starts. Um, In the U.S. in 2020 and 2021, we actually saw a record number of new businesses being started. So, you know, we shouldn't penalize these workers for doing this. This is, you know, this is that type of like work ethic that we always want people to have. And so why don't we support them when they have it? Yeah, one of the things that you also point out that I thought was was really interesting, too, is that this isn't really about, you know, there is this myth, of course, and, and I think it was laid bare, again, to use that term, was sort of became to, came to prominence that people were making more money on CERB than they were working. So why would they go back to work? And people were complaining about that, I know, in the U.S., certainly here in Canada. But this was never, this as you point out, this isn't really about the money. In, in most situations, if you find yourself unemployed and relying on employment insurance that you've paid into, by the way, uh, over the years while you've been employed that it's not really about the money it's about the security and and that's the problem it's really about the security not the money and the security isn't there right exactly well and then the other thing that happened it was fascinating you know i also here in the u.s everyone was very much like oh people get unemployment they don't want to work 
I was astounded by the number of people that kept looking for jobs and kept applying for jobs and really wanted to get back to work. You know, work does a lot of things. It gives us order to our day. It gives us, for many of us, a sense of identity. People want to work. And so we need to make it possible for them to get back into uh, work when they want it without being penalized. Yeah. And, and you, and you've, cited some studies here in Canada as well, that uh, there are an increasing number of workers out there who don't have what we would consider to be traditional jobs. And therefore, they're kind of slipping through the cracks of a system that was built for another time and another era of work. Right, exactly. So most times, unemployment systems are structured with this sort of idea of uh, one job, one worker. It's a very outdated, antiquated uh, view, because now we are seeing everybody having this polyemployment. You know, and in many cases, even official numbers are not capturing everything because it will only capture second job if your first job is uh, an employee-based job and your second job is also an employee-based job. And so we actually have to look at a number of different sources and surveys to really get an idea of what's actually going on. And, and this, is not, um, this does not apply equally, clearly, as you've also pointed out, that those who uh, make the least, least amount of money are the ones who find themselves most often uneligible for the kind of security they may hope for. Exactly. Yes. So if you make less money, in many cases, you might be disqualified from unemployment assistance because you haven't earned enough, earned enough in quotes. Um, In some cases, you might get reduced level of benefits or you might get reduced number of weeks of benefits. Um, In Canada in particular, it's very difficult for workers uh, to get unemployment assistance unless they've earned a certain amount, just like in the U.S. Um, And while Canada is better in allowing gig workers to get unemployment assistance, they have to contribute to it for a year. And for most gig workers, you know, they think that gig work will always be there. So they don't contribute into unemployment assistance. And then they end up equally out of luck. Alexandria Ravenel is with us. Uh, Her book is called Side Hustle Safety Net, How Vulnerable Workers Survive Precarious Times. I I suppose the answers here are different in different places. Canada obviously has national programs. Um, America has state-run programs. So the solutions are all different. But what are some of the basic things that could be done to try to make sure that these social safety nets uh, catch up to the reality of what work looks like in 2023? I'm so glad you asked that. So first and foremost, we need to recognize that the classification um, of gig workers and other workers as independent contractors is really all about saving that company money. When Uber, when TaskRabbit, when DoorDash classify their workers as independent contractors, they save anywhere from 20 to 40% on their payroll taxes. They don't provide benefits. They don't provide any protections. So we need to get rid of that classification. Um, We need to also really sort of equalize the unemployment assistance, um, at least in the U.S. You know, different states offer different amounts. North Carolina, where I teach, offers some of the lowest levels of unemployment assistance for some of the lowest periods of time in the country. And even then, it's only about a 10% recipiency rate. Only about 10% of eligible workers can get the funds. In other states, like in Washington state, the amount of money that people can receive can be $1,100. It can be three, four times as much as they can get in North Carolina. So we need to unhinge these systems from being state controlled and really have some stronger federal standards that all states are held up to. In terms of both US and, and Canada, one thing we need to do is really look at 
um, what the income requirements are for receiving unemployment assistance. So it shouldn't be that, you know, if you make very minimal amounts of money, you should still get unemployment assistance. And maybe it shouldn't be linked to what you were making before. Maybe it's time for the government to step in and give you a little step up when you're on unemployment um, in order to more more equalize the situation for unemployed workers. The the resistance to that <clears throat> traditionally has always been the idea that this is this is giving people money for not doing anything, right? That's always been the resistance. I imagine that's exactly what North Carolina's approach to it is, considering North Carolina is a fairly wealthy state, if I remember correctly. Um, but there is a benefit, I think, and this is the argument you make, there is a greater societal benefit here to providing that money, that it's not giving people something for nothing. It is, in fact, giving back to the economy broadly. It really is. So unemployment assistance is one of those things where people get the money and they almost immediately spend it. Typically, even when unemployment assistance is generous, it's maybe about 40% of what people were making previously. So that money comes in and goes right back out. In both the US and Canada, we have a very consumer driven economy. Literally my paycheck goes and purchases things that then generates your paycheck. Your paycheck generates somebody else's paycheck and just becomes this big cycle, this big circle of spending back and forth. So <laughs> giving somebody money, and again, you're not giving it to them, right? They've contributed, um, they, you know, their employer has contributed, um, but it simply keeps our economy going. You know, it, when we look at the roots of unemployment assistance, it actually comes out of the Great Depression. One of the reasons why we had the Great Depression is that people's incomes dropped and as a result, demand drops. And so we literally have people starving in the streets in the United States, even though there are plenty of crops. And later on, we start unemployment assistance and we never again get to that level of poverty nationwide. Um, and that's because you're able to keep the economic cycle going. And you spoke, you speak to people who are in these two different situations and, and to focus perhaps on the poly employed, uh, there's a real sense of frustration there too, a sense of, there is a sense of unfairness that they understand that they're actually working as much doing different kinds of work than someone who say has a full-time job at one place. And, uh, and they perceive the unfairness of it all as well. They absolutely do perceive the unfairness. Um, you know, there was one woman that I interviewed who was working four jobs. Um, she was doing Airbnb. She was modeling. She had these two working in a restaurant, all these jobs. She's working 60 hours a week. And yet when unemployment comes through, it only is linked to one of her jobs that she's lost, not all four of them. And so she ends up turning to these survival strategies. She's actually finding work off of Craigslist. At one point, she starts selling uh she starts selling clean urine for other workers drug tests um, oh, because yeah. she's looking for a way to make money yeah uh did you have you had much i mean i know there was an op-ed in the globe and mail the book is out this is not the first book you've written on gig work by the way uh, have you had much response to this one so far are people hearing the message that you're sending People are hearing the message, yes. Um, so I'm hearing from uh, gig workers that they're glad that the book is out there, that somebody is really uh, focusing on their story. Um, this is a brand new book. So I've heard certainly much more so far from the book that came out a couple of years ago that was uh, just focused on these challenges facing gig workers um, 
before even unemployment assistance or the pandemic. Um, and workers are generally really glad that somebody is talking about what's going on and they're, they're eager for changes. They're hoping that their representatives will see this and that their clients will see this and will you know, tip them in cash and treat them better and recognize that for some workers, this is an occupation of last resort that they're turning to, and yet they shouldn't be penalized for that. Right. And I guess there hasn't been much movement of late, as not as far as I've seen on this whole notion of the independent contractor, which again, uh, just strikes me as being, I mean, I get why they do it, but and I, I get why consumers demand it uh, to some extent, because they want to pay less. But but ultimately, you're, you are we are rolling back a long many years of many years of hard fought and hard won uh, employer employee rights here. We are. Yes, we are. We're seeing the gay economy roll back generations of hard won workplace protections. And, you know, it's not just your Uber driver. We're actually seeing the rise of what I call shadow gig platforms. These are gig platforms that are increasingly moving into white collar and professional work. Um, everything from store deliveries and nursing staff to chefs to even academics. You can hire a sociologist on one of these platforms for $40 an hour um, as an independent contractor. And, you know, they come for one job first and then eventually they're coming for the rest. Yes. Uh, Alexandria, well put. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. My name is Kira McCormack. I'm a professional soccer player, a whistleblower, and a board member of PFA Canada, the first pro soccer player union in Canada. As an athlete, I was forced to leave Canada to escape abuse. Mm -hmm. Today, 16 years later, I live abroad, not feeling safe to stay in Canada professionally or personally because of the truth that I have shared. <sighs> Online, as I have watched these government hearings, and seen countless athletes bravely re-traumatize themselves telling their horrific stories, I can't help but ask myself, how many more stories will it take for those of you in government to demand a national inquiry and implement real change? That is Kiara McCormack uh, and some, some pretty tough testimony both to deliver and to listen to, right? Testifying at a parliamentary committee in December looking into the safety of women and girls in sports. She and many others from many different sports are calling for a public inquiry into this. She told others, she and others have told MPs about uh, that day, about the physical and mental abuse that they've endured at the hands of coaches and others, other officials over the years. They said that the abuse is rampant in multiple sports and they're calling again for a fundamental rethink of how elite sports are governed in this country. This all began in many ways, although she played many years ago with the Vancouver Whitecaps amongst many others uh, and she was capped. She played uh, for the Republic of Ireland internationally, uh, where her mom is from. In February of 2019, she wrote a powerful blog called The Horrific Canadian Soccer Story, the story no one wants to listen to, but everyone needs to hear. And that sparked what became, uh, you know, her advocacy, essentially. To this day, she continues to advocate for the safety of women and girls in sport, including the ongoing calls, as I mentioned, for a public inquiry. But she's also been playing soccer in Limerick with an Ireland-based team called Treaty United. And last week, another huge step uh, for the 44-year-old from Vancouver. She's become the co-owner, actually from Vancouver. I'll have to go back and look at that age again. Uh, from Vancouver, she's become the co-owner and CEO of the club, the first woman to take up those roles at a League of Ireland club 
ever. It includes, of course, a men's team as well. Uh, after speaking up for so long, she now plans to use that position to help create the kind of environment as a leader, to create the kind of environment that she's been advocating for for years now. It's been a huge story in Ireland. It was covered in the British press too, a big article in The Guardian. So we wanted to catch up. And uh, Kiara McCormack joins me from Limerick. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks this for having must, me. This must be an exciting time. I mean, uh, how did you? I, I I know you obviously played as an Ireland Ireland international, but how did you end up in this situation? Because it it seems like a it's a big move for you. Yeah, um, it's I guess quite a random story um, in the sense that my initial idea was to do um, a team in West Cork, a women's team in West Cork, where my mom's from, mm-hmm. and I reached out to the League of Ireland spoke to them. They sort of told me they were moving towards professionalizing the club scene in Ireland and having men's, women's and youth academies like within the structure. So they weren't up for having a standalone women's team. And so they had suggested then within the same region, there was a club that needed help on the women's side, which was Treaty United. And they said to me, you know, that might be a good place to kind of you know, start. And so one of my best friends for playing for Ireland was at Treaty as a player and as a coach. And so that kind of gave me the segue in quickly. I brought over um, uh, six Canadian girls uh, this year to play on the women's team. And then once, you know, I, we came over and I got roped into playing as well. So we, once we, I kind of got on the ground, I sort of saw they were quite stretched and I asked them, you know, would you guys be open if I, you know, went out and found some significant investment in terms of, well, you know, giving over the club and and they were. And so that basically started a little odyssey um, of feeling like I was on Dragon's Den for a few months, pitched the vision and the idea and obviously felt very strongly and genuinely about it. And came across Tricor as it was my um, my friend Riley's family's office. And so, yeah, I don't think they were at all in the market to, you know, invest in an Irish sports team when I came along. But I guess I can be quite convincing if I'm passionate about something. And as the time went on, um, yeah, they ended up deciding that it was something they wanted to be a part of. And uh, yeah, culminated with the announcement on Thursday. And here we are. That's awesome. I mean, Canadians will remember, I think, what you've said about the game, perhaps more than the games that you've played. And that's not a criticism. I just think a lot of the times that you played, uh, people were, didn't get a chance to see you play, right? Or, or not often. But but this is a bit, I mean, it strikes me that this is an opportunity for you to create an environment that you'd been championing for a very long time. Yeah, to be honest, it's the coolest part about it. I think, um, you know, I was back in Ottawa Well, I was there in December and in April testifying in front of the government, which, you know, was obviously going back and reliving some fairly painful memories of the game that I had when I was playing in Canada. And so it was just a lot of, you know, fanfare without any action being taken by the government and witnessing others and just seeing nothing was being done about it and kind of just feeling, you know, like if things are going to change you know, it's just not going to come from sitting on the sidelines. Like it's just to to get involved and to get into leadership roles is, you know, what's important. And that kind of, you know, that was sort of the beginning of this whole process with treaty and what motivated me to kind of go out and to, to really, again, try to just create something that I wish that I had as a player and, and to take all the negative experiences that I've had and, and turn it into something positive. So yeah, that absolutely has been a driving force behind this for sure. 
for listeners who may not remember, Kara wrote a blog post that was that went viral. To use that term, went viral. Called the story no one wants to listen to, but everyone needs to hear uh, about playing sports in Canada. Uh, and it was really about a system that essentially Kara was pointing out, and this has been something that was pointed out over many many years that the system was set up not to properly protect players, uh, specifically from from their coaches uh, who controlled so much of their futures. When you talked a bit about that test, I've watched the testimony again from back in December. It was really hard for you to go through that. I know telling that story again and again and again. Do you honestly feel like it hasn't really moved the needle as much as you'd hoped? You know, I think it's a huge victory. And I think something that every athlete that's spoken out should be proud of, of sort of the, the fact that just the suppressing forces have been, you know, again, we were, we were silenced for a decade as we try to report a coach that's, you know, that was fired for sexual misconduct, who's now in jail for sexual assault of multiple athletes. And we're just one of, you know, many sports and stories that that happened to. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have a lot to be proud of in the sense that we persevered and the public now knows how dire things are. And, and, I, I think parents now are a lot more cognizant of just the just the dangers of the the system and just that they are aware that the, the institutions care about protecting themselves and they don't care about the players. And that's just the reality of it. And so I think I feel better knowing that at least players are protected that way. But in terms of like, you know, just solid mechanisms or anything done by the government or, you know, to actually properly protect players, I don't feel like that part of it has moved. But there's only so much you can do. And I think for me now, what I'm really looking forward to moving forward is just being away from all of it. And and again, being able to create something instead of talking about what it could be, just having the opportunity out, like removed far from Canadian sport to just again, have the, have the foundation and the tools to be able to build something really special for, for players here. And hopefully, you know, give a springboard to Canadian players also that would want to come over and be a part of it. Yeah, because part of the reason you wound up in Ireland playing for the their national team was the was speaking out, right? I mean, it, it's it's difficult to draw. I mean, it's you know, sports is what is what it is, but often it feels like you speaking out is what forced you uh, to go play for your mother's uh, homeland instead of the country you were born in. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality of it. I spoke out in 2007, along with another athlete, and we were both in the mix with the Canadian national team at the time, and both of us never played for. Canada again, or ever got an opportunity and, and, you know, Charmaine Hooper, Charlton Nona and Christine Latham, they were three players that had, you know, hundreds of caps between them playing for Canada who also spoke out and they got, you know, never played for Canada again. And that unfortunately was the reality in that time period, you know, it was a really toxic environment and you did get retaliated against and, and, you know, had your national team aspirations ripped away if you spoke out. So I was very lucky in the sense that I had an Irish passport and um, that allowed me really to continue my international career. But of course, like it was a very devastating time for me. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I am Canadian. I grew up in Canada. It was the country I dreamed to represent. And um, so from that standpoint, like I'm so grateful I had an opportunity to play for Ireland. And I think it's added motivation for me again to give back to a country that really rescued me from a really awful situation. Uh, Kara, I imagine like everyone else, I mean, we watched Ireland at the World Cup, obviously the women's team, you would have as well. We watched Canada in the same group in the women's team, in the, uh, in the women's World Cup. Uh, there was a lot of eyes on it. It felt like the game was in a really good place. And then the final happens and the Spanish incident happens and, and all the things that were kind of, I, I want to use the word ugly about the game, reared their head. Uh, are you satisfied? I mean, tell me a bit about how you saw it and are you satisfied with how that was handled? It felt like maybe things had changed just a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, I was actually at the opening game between Australia and Ireland, mm-hmm. um, you know, 75,000 people and girls that I'd played for Ireland with were on the field in that game. And, you know, we had I'd played with them 12 years ago in front of tiny crowds in Dublin, you know, and and so yeah, it was it was magical, honestly, to to just see it and be in Sydney and walk around and just see the buzz and you know, you just saw the the momentum just build and build and build. And then that happened in, in you know, at the World Cup final on like the biggest stage. But I think like most women watching that could identify in the sense that this is just the reality of being a woman, you know, like mm-hmm. all of us have stories in so many different capacities of those like har- the harassment and being uncomfortable. And the fact that that he was that audacious in like global television to do that, like I just think it really hammered home a message that like this is how empowered these guys are and this is how empowered these institutions are and how untouchable these people are and these are all the things we've been saying these are all the things that the you know 15 Spanish players that spoke out before the World Cup that you know for this exact environment that they called out and you know multiple players you know really talented top-notch players for Spain sat at home and weren't a part of the World Cup because of it so he did that and it went on for weeks and weeks until he got removed and you know Jorge Vilda got fired because of it and then a month later is coaching the Moroccan women's yeah. national team so we have a long way to go you know and and I think again for me even going through this whole process in, in terms of with treaty like I was sort of subject to some of the most you know just gross sexism that I've ever experienced and you know just situations again when you're sitting there and you're thinking if I was a 50 year old man there's no way I'd be spoken to like this or treated like this and you know it's just it it's really steeled my resolve in terms of how important it is for again women to get into leadership roles because unfortunately like I just don't think things are going to change unless we're sitting at the tables and and we're speaking up about stuff and witnessing what we witnessed in the World Cup final it just again has sort of really hammered home to me how important it is to be in these kinds of roles and and hopefully open the door for other females to do the same. Yeah, that, and yeah, I, for listeners who I, I Luis Rubiales, who was, who was the president of of the federation in Spain, kissed the women's team captain after their victory, and it created a huge sensation. People don't remember that incident. He was then he finally resigned after many, many, many weeks of of back and forth. Uh, I guess job one, though, though now you're the CEO and co-owner of, of a soccer team. I'm thinking about Ryan Reynolds at Wrexham FC and so on. I guess there's some pressures too because the team's got to. I suppose the team's got to perform, and there's all those other things that you've got a lot on your plate all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, it's been a very eye-opening week in the sense of obviously fans see the, you know, the field and that's the final product, but there's so much that goes in behind the scenes in terms of just getting a team or multiple teams on the field. And so, you know, but again, for me, it's like a dream come true. And, And obviously I worked so hard on this deal and getting this over the line and you know, just being very cognizant of the fact that like, I don't look like what the the normal CEO looks like. And I I actually tweeted a a story of going to rent a car yesterday. And the guy asking me, you know, he saw my license that I was from Canada and asked me what I was doing in Ireland. And I said, Oh, like I'm involved in soccer. And then him saying to me like, Oh, you know, like our local club team just got taken over by Canadian investors and there's a new (laughs) female CEO. And I, <laughs> I, I was so surprised to be honest. I just, I was like, Oh wow. That's like, that's wild. That's, that's that so sounds cool. great. I can't imagine. I wonder who she is. And I didn't tell him. I like, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's um like I said, I'm so motivated to make it a great experience, you know, just not just for the players, but for the coaches, the fans, the volunteers, Um, you know, it's just a real honor to be able to be in a position to, 
you know, just create an amazing environment that people want to be a part of. We'll, we'll be cheering you on from, from over here back home. Kara, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Farah Nasser is a name that you might recognize. She's been a longtime broadcaster. First, uh, I remember working alongside her back when she was at Toronto One, uh, when I was at Global in Toronto many, many moons ago, 20 years ago, actually. 20 years ago this week, believe it or not, I started at Global in Toronto, moving from Montreal. Um, remember it well. I was actually, you know how I remember it? I remember it because of the, of the, of the light. I remember how you know, it's the time of year where it starts to get dark uh, in the morning and when you come home from work in the evening. And I just remember it was it was dark. It was no longer summer by the time I got there all the way back 20 years ago. So Farah Nasser had had, was was at Toronto One. She'd been at, uh, she'd been to, done some radio before that. She was at City. Uh, then she's been at, was at Global Toronto for a long time. And of course, at Global National now as the weekend anchor and reporter. And uh, she has this great new role. Now, young people and young women, as you well know, if you listen to this show or you watch the news, uh, in particular, remain on the front lines fighting for their rights in the face of repression and violence uh, these days. You'll remember, of course, all those young women who stood up in Iran and suffered a brutal crackdown on dissent uh, and those struggling to survive under the brutal repression of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Those are just a few examples. And championing children's rights and equality uh, for girls is what Plan International Canada has been doing for a very long time now, uh, eight decades, and in more than 80 countries these days. And it's a mission that does speak to issues that Farah uh, has been talking about and championing and focused on for her more than 20 years in journalism, as I mentioned, in radio news, in TV, and now at Global, and then at Global Toronto, uh, and now with Global National. And that's why she has become Plan Canada's newest celebrated, or Plan Canada International's newest celebrated ambassador. It's a pretty big honor. There's been many great names before, another great one in her, and Farah Nasser uh, joins me now to talk about it. Uh, Farah, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting role for you know for anybody. I mean, it's both uh, a great honor and I suspect probably a, a challenge for you as well because you want to be able to bring yourself to this role and uh, champion some of the things that you've cared about and have spoken about for years. I mean, you've been talking about many of these issues for a very long time now, so it makes perfect sense that you get to do it on this stage now. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's funny, as you know, I mean, we're journalists, we're not advocates, right? And And... Um, so there's really definitely that fine line, but I don't think anyone can argue that, um, you know, girls and women, I mean, we look at this past week, how, how the war has impacted children. Like it's just, if they pay a totally different price. So it just, you know, we were supposed to have this big splashy announcement last week and, um, and of course we didn't, but it, but given what happened last week, it just showed the importance of, of programs like this plan is doing great work around the world. Um, but especially for, for young girls, which who, again, pay the, pay the toughest price with yeah. these type of things. There's been so many examples. I just feel even in the last 12 months that you could look at mm-hmm. as, as things that you've been talking about for a while too. But you look at a country like Iran, where young women pretty much were at the forefront yeah. of, of that of that movement, or at least the resurrection of that movement. I was interested to see too that that for a lot of them, for a lot of young women activists today, the kind of people that you'll be speaking about and speaking to, uh, you know, there's some security risks for them too. There's a lot on the line for them, and sometimes we forget how brave they are to step out and raise their voices. And it need you know it needs things like plan to try and support that. 
Yeah, it, it's it's so sad that we're at that stage. I mean, I spoke to this young um, this young uh, she's a, a um, with Plant Canada. She's there, uh, one of their ambassadors too, young ambassadors. And her name's Alicia. And she was talking about activism and how hard it is for her. Like it just and and she's in Canada, but when she puts stuff out, the the trolls, the people that get to her, the messages she gets, like this is a young girl just trying to do good in the world. And you think about how difficult that is. And she was like, "This is nothing. Imagine being in Iran." And she She's totally right. You know, this is where you get actual death threats and you fear for your life. Like Iran, places like Afghanistan, where these girls are just, they want basic education. They want basic rights that the rest of us have. And they're trying to make a difference. And this next generation, as you know, is different from us, right? Like they are just demanding change, which is so inspiring, uh, but having such a hard time doing so. Yeah, you you make a really great point. I feel like, and maybe this is just because I've gotten older, but I feel like what they're advocating for and the price they're willing to pay to see it happen has become, uh, you know, exponentially more serious than it was even when I was young. And maybe that's just that's just getting older. But I really look at what what a lot of young women are doing and advocating for these days, and think, wow, that takes a lot of courage. Yeah, certainly, and and I think. Um... I, it, it makes me sad to think that people, girls don't want to do this work, right? Because it is, it takes that heavy burden. And I mean, we look at even, uh, Ben, you know, female journalists, like what we've been through. So with young girls who don't have that experience to have to to deal with all of this, like this girl is, she's spoken at the UN. Um, she's a young activist from Toronto. And, and to have to deal with people who are questioning her, who are attacking her, um, it's it's really troubling. When you look back at your career, and of course, I've known you since you started off, I mean, just about since you started off at, uh, at Toronto One, I know there was stuff before that as well, but then yeah. through City and then to Global and so on. What, what do you think you, you're able to bring to this given your life experience as well? Because I think it's pretty, you, you've seen a lot of stuff that uh, firsthand that many others haven't. Yeah, I mean, I think I I think maybe it's I mean, you've seen a lot, Ben, you've been all around the world. But I think for for what I've seen is is just my lived experience, right? Being a woman of color in, um, you know, um, a male dominated, um, I guess, field in, in a way in terms of at least management. I mean, we see a lot of people on camera who are people of color, who are women. But as we know, people behind the scenes generally um, have been male. So I think for me, it's the storytelling that's that's key, right? Bringing right. the stories uh, of women who in voices that aren't often heard and that should be celebrated and that need to be part of the conversation. So to me, that's really important. And then there's things, I mean, not just the, the activism and we're talking about um, young women, there are other things that we also don't talk about that plan is really passionate about things like, um, you know, period poverty and menopause and things that, you know, are real right. taboo subjects that you and I have never had a conversation about, you know, but, but things that need to be, need to be discussed because I, I'm a real champion of equity. Like I really believe that in order to get equality, um, which is the payoff, we need equity, which is the investment. And I think once we can recognize what young girls go through and the burden that they go through and women go through and how we're different, I think then we can reach actual equality. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting you bring those up because both there was a big study this week, of course, on the cost of menopause, right? And needing to pay more attention to it. I feel like now the conversations are starting because because the data is there. I mean, the, the case is being made. Period poverty was another big one uh, that came out that's been increasingly talked about. It's interesting you bring those things up because you're right. Mm -hmm. They're things we don't often talk about, but they lie at the bottom of so much of this conversation. 
Yeah. I mean, even just talking to the, I've known you for years, but even talking to you about this feels a little uncomfortable because we're, we're yeah. programmed to think that it is uncomfortable. Right. And, but when we look at data, uh, the menopause foundation of Canada found one in 10 women leave in their prime earning years in leadership roles because of menopause, because yeah. of a biological phenomenon, they feel like they need to leave the workplace, which is mind boggling to me. Right. So I think there's things that we need to, and this is, this is half our country, right? This is like half our workforce over the women over the age of 40. So I think there's real conversations that need to happen um, that are not happening. Um, and I don't think it's fair to women. There's so much out there that you could focus on. That was one of the things thinking about about you getting this role. I saw the release, obviously, and thought, wow, mm -hmm. that sounds daunting, too, because there's so much you can focus on. And yet yeah. you only have so much time and you only can it's focus true. on so many topics. Uh, what do you really want to walk away from this experience with? And what would you like to leave this experience with? I think it's the, the different perspective, right? I think I want to leave people with... Uh, the notion that there's work to do, but there's also hope. I mean, when I meet the young girls that are involved in this and the women that are part of Plan Canada, uh, who have gotten to know, it's it it leaves me with a lot of hope. And I think if we can be part of that change and we can be part of conversations that are taboo and we can actually bring things to light. And again, talking about that equity piece, like saying, no, we are different. Here's why we're different. Here's how male leaders can help. Here's the conversations that we aren't having that we should have. If we can, if we can get somewhere um, with with those topics, to me, I think that'll be that'll be a huge win. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you 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 have you have someone at home too looking up to you, right? I mean, there's there's a lot yeah. going on here. Yeah, you have that. Yeah. that to think about too, being a role model not only for others but but in your under your own roof. Yeah, and I mean, I look at my daughter and what what's been going on in the Middle East, and you know. We it's just luck of the draw where we were born, right? Ben, like like we could have been we could have been in Gaza, we could have been in Afghanistan, we could have been anywhere. You know, my ancestors are from rural India. I could have still been there. You know, like it's just things just kind of happen. And I ended up being born in Canada and I was really lucky and my daughter as well. And but it, she could have been anywhere. And to me, that means that there has to be a global effort, especially to protect children. Um, because again, the ramifications of what's happening in the world are not just on the kids right now. They have long-term consequences, right? So um, that's why I think this work is so important. And it does feel like times that we that once everything um, hits the fan, so to speak, we forget. We forget about kids caught up in the middle of all of this. You know, we forget about mm -hmm. the trauma that's inflicted on them in any number of conflict zones around the world. When you know, when 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 Afghanistan crushes women's rights again, we stop. You know, we talk about it for a bit, then we stop. You know, this and it, it just it, it it's a tough conversation that to bring up, and it needs to be continuously raised. I think, and that's kind of the beauty of of the position you have and what Plan does. Period is that it does keep keep it out there. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, the news cycle comes, and then something else happens, and then we don't talk about this. The other thing that I really want to leave with is I, I want to educate young boys. I want them to understand what's happening with young girls around the world and male leaders. I think there's a lot of work to do that we're just we're, we're, oftentimes when we do things like this, especially for women and girls and International Women's Day sometimes is is to me is, you know, we, we need to do a better job at just not preaching to the choir and talking about equality to women. I think there's an economic case that can be made to the world, right, to talk about this. I think there's a responsibility that needs to be articulated to the world about what young girls are going through. It's, it's a responsibility that's that 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 is everybody has to has to take so um to me that's an important part of it it's something i talk to my son about all the time and um and yeah i hope i'm raising someone that that will will look through that lens as as they go into the workforce and maybe become a boss or an employer
So, I mean, uh, in a nutshell, this this is a pretty big this is a pretty big moment for you as well. Just personally, this is kind of a big moment because this kind of this kind of encapsulates a lot of what you've been talking about. I know just all, all, on the sidelines of what we do day mm-hmm. and day, the stuff that's, that really matters to you. Yeah, and 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 as you know, I mean, as journalists, we're taught to be neutral, um, and you know, we're, we're we go, try to go into this. But before I'm a journalist, I'm a human, and this is something that I've been passionate about for a long time. Um, I've done work in remote communities. Um, I've mentored a lot of women. I, th- these issues to me are 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 really big, and they're just kind of a part of who I am. So to be able to do this and have a role that supports me in doing this type of work, it allows me to have conversations like this with people like you. Um, yeah, you're right. It, personally, this is a big win for me. Well, Farah, I look forward to seeing all that you achieve and all and, and all those you. who listen. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.